Welcome to another episode of Close Talking with me, Jack Rossiter Munley. And me, Connor McNamara Stratton. We are two good friends with one love of poetry, and so we come together to bring you this show where we read a poem, talk about that poem, and then read the poem again. This week, we have a poem that Connor chose. Yes, we have a marvelous poem by Ocean Vong called Anaphora as Coping Mechanism. And just a little bit of context. So Ocean Vong is was born in 1988. Um, and he- So what is he, like 12? He's <laughs> 28, 28 years old. 28, what is he, like 12? Oh my God, all right, Jack, you're, you're done, you're through. Um, he came out with a book- Over! He came out with a book of poems this past year in 2016 called uh, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, which won the Whiting Award and potentially other awards, but it is like, it was one of the biggest books of in poetry last year. Um, he is blowing up. Um, I was at the AWP, which is like the big writers conference, and Everyone was like, did you get Ocean Vong's new book? Did you get Ocean Vong's book? I was like, no, but I got to get it. And then I got it. And then it was great. Um, so. It got it good. Yeah. Um, he's a great poet. And it's his debut book. And so anyway. So and uh, just a slight bit of context, which I think will help. The title, Anaphora as Coping Mechanism. So anaphora, anaphora is a poetic or a lit like a rhetorical device, which is repetition that occurs at the beginning of a sentence or phrase. So, um, or replacing something to avoid repetition. Oh, it's like, instead of saying, I want to go out, I want to mm -hmm. go to the store, say, I want to go out. The store is where I want to go. Okay. So, we right. got those two. I think those are both options. So another example would be, we will not do this. We will not do that. We will not do anything. We won't do anything at all. So the we will not do would be the anaphora. So I think that will be helpful in listening. Um, okay. Anaphora as coping mechanism. Can't sleep. So you put on his gray boots, nothing else, and step out in the rain. Even though he's gone, you think, I still want to be clean. If only the rain were gasoline, your tongue a lit match, and you can change without disappearing. If only he dies the second his name becomes a tooth in your mouth. But he doesn't. He dies when they wheel him away and the priest ushers you out of the room, your palms two puddles of rain. He dies as your heart beats faster, as another war coppers the sky. He dies each night you close your eyes and hear his slow exhale, your fist choking the dark, your fist through the bathroom mirror. He dies at the party where everyone laughs and all you want is to go into the kitchen and make seven omelets before burning down the house. 
All you want is to run into the woods and beg the wolf to fuck you up. He dies when you wake and it's November forever. A Hendrix record melted on rusted needle. He dies the morning he kisses you for two minutes too long when he says, wait, followed by, I have something to say. And you quickly grab your favorite pink pillow and smother him as he cries into the soft and darkening fabric. You hold still until he's very quiet, until the walls dissolve and you're both standing in the crowded train again. Look how it rocks you back and forth like a slow dance seen from a distance of years. You're still a freshman. You're still terrified of having only two hands. And he doesn't know your name yet, but he smiles anyway. His teeth reflected in the window, reflecting your lips as you mouth hello, your tongue a lit match. Wow. Yeah. That's that. Woo. Um, I love this poem. Um, I love it because, partly because it's, I love that it uses a poetic term in its title, but also it's just, I don't know, it's to me, it's just a great example of form explicitly working with the content. So here we have Ocean Vong, the speaker who uh, is still a freshman in college, who I think has his uh, boyfriend or lover has left him or I think has died. Um, and so he's coping with the loss of this guy. And what the poem starts in the present tense, and the way that I read this is that it, it there's a kind of reverse chronology to how the poem moves. So the poem starts with can't sleep, which is on its own line, which is in the present tense after having lost this person. Um, so you put on his gray boots, we're going out, and then we're thinking, and then, but he doesn't later on in like the sixth line, he dies when they wheel him away and the priest ushers you out of the room. So then we go back in time to presumably the moment, I think when the, this, this guy dies. Um, and then we go, I think even more back, I think potentially he dies at the party where everyone laughs and all you want it. It, well, all you want is to go into the kitchen and make seven omelets before burning down the house. That is either, I think, after the speaker knows that his partner is going to die. Um, then later, um, he dies when you wake and it's November forever. And then he dies the morning he kisses you for two minutes too long. And he says, wait, followed by I have something to say. And so that, I think, goes further back in time to when he reveals, I think, that he's dying, that his partner is dying. And finally, it goes back further to um, you hold still until he's very quiet, until the walls dissolve and you're both standing in the crowded train again. And then you're still terrified of having only two hands and he doesn't know your name yet, but he smiles anyway. And then his teeth reflected in the window, reflecting your lips as you mouth hello. So this goes further back in time to when they first meet before any of this happens. And so to me, 
Well, I just love that progression of reverse chronology. And the last kind of thing that I think in terms of form, working with the content, so anaphora with as coping mechanism. So we have repetition as coping mechanism. So we can see this poem as sort of both maybe a record of events, but also the event itself. So we're drawing attention to Ocean Vong writing this poem or reading this poem after having written it as a, as a literal sort of coping mechanism. And the repetition is serving to do that coping. And so there's lots of anaphora throughout. The big one that is there is the he dies. So he dies happens is repeated, I think, seven times in the poem. And within that, there's lots of smaller anaphoras. So there's if only, which happens two times in the beginning, if only the rain were gasoline, if only he dies the second his name becomes a tooth. There's later on your fist choking the dark, your fist through the bathroom mirror, until is repeated a couple times at the end reflecting, so his teeth reflected in the window, reflecting your lips. Um, and then finally, there's a repetition of uh, your tongue lit match, which is a, that's the interesting repetition of most of the other ones of the smaller clusters happen really quickly after each other, if only, if only. And then your tongue lit match happens at the beginning. So if only, da 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 da, your tongue lit match like if only your tongue were a lit match. And then by the end, um, we have a, it returns as you mouth hello, your tongue a lit match. Quickly, yeah. right at the end there, there's also you're still a freshman, you're still terrified of having, right. which yes. interestingly comes right after a line that starts, you hold still. Mm -hmm. So that's not fully there, but it's also, even on that, just sort of a half call back to the line that came right before those two. Mm -hmm. What I love about this move, if we think about your tongue lit match, so in the beginning, it's posed as, as a if only. So if only your tongue could be a lit match and you can change. And so in the beginning, we have not yet coped. And so if only this could be the case, maybe things would be different. And yet by the end, by the end of the poem in which anaphora has served as a coping mechanism, your tongue is a lit match. And so even, which is interesting because then time is working in two ways. So there's the chronology that's recorded that's going in reverse, and then there's the sort of time of the poem. And so by the end of the poem, the tongue has become a lit match, which I think represents some kind of ability to be okay, or some kind of place that's okay. And then there's the reverse time, which is sort of like receding into memory. And so I feel like the way I read this poem, I've sort of gone on for a while, is the use of repetition to deal with grieving and the memory of all of these. Like now every time he remembers this guy, he remembers that he's gone. And so that, is this kind of thing that he has to work through all of his memories to deal with in this repetitious way. That's very interesting. And I love that last line. And I love the number of levels that this poem is working at, because if you actually mouth the word hello, 
your tongue starts at the top of your mouth and goes to the bottom, which is very similar to striking a match, mm. which I just think is incredible. And That's cool. because of the level this poem is working at and the attention to detail that is throughout it signaled by the title, I absolutely think that that's intentional i think for sure yeah um uh, which is so interesting and i think that what's really interesting is that through this repetitious retelling of recent history i didn't read that last line as he is now in a place where his tongue is a lit match he's achieved his memory goal i saw the lit match and the tongue and the callback there's lots of mouth imagery all throughout this and lots of yeah. discussion of teeth and mouths and tongues and you know and this connection as well to fire because the fire is also called out in the melted hendrix record and that to me signals the relationship it's the fire of passion that's sort of burning throughout both what is causing the rain to fall, which is not gasoline. It's what puts out the fire. It's the rain of grief at the beginning that keeps his tongue from being a lit match. He wants an expansive rain. There's almost nothing more romantic than a kiss in the rain. He wants his tongue to be a lit match in a gasoline rain that just lights the world up with their passion. That's impossible because his partner has either left him or died. In the memory of that, and by going through it, his world does not become one where he is now achieving that goal, but the memory that he reaches back to through starting with the grief is this joyous memory of their union where in whispering hello, they struck the match that kindled the original fire. He's beginning a memory process we don't see that is remembering the better parts. He's worked through the grieving, the intense grieving, to get to a point where it is that passion and fire that now is not a melted, rusted record, is not, you know, dampened by the rain. It is that small personal fire between the two of them that he can carry forward. Um, it's not going to burn down the house. Again, that's another link of the fire to destruction, the connection to grief. He dies when you want to make these omelets and it's going to burn down the house. It's this different kind of fire it's restating it's sort of almost bringing the two meanings of anaphora together because he's reflecting the words he used earlier but he's replaced all of the meaning and he actually says you can change without disappearing i think that's sort of what's going on here the the fact of his symbol is still there all of the meaning behind it has been inverted yeah i like that reading <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think I see it that I think I have a slightly different reading than you did. Yeah, yeah. No, that I think that I am uh I'm sold. I'm convinced. I there was a part of me that was like, it's the reading I have. All almost all the pieces line up, but I don't quite know about the last part. And so I like I think that that's probably more accurate where he's reached a memory where that potential is still there. The use of the lit match as the sort of positive symbol is very interesting because, you know, it's the capacity to kindle all that passion, all that stuff. But of course, it's also destruction and it bodes like it doesn't really bode well if it's not controlled. And and, and, yeah. and being a match is the most finite version of a fire, but it's also the one with the most potential. 
Yeah. You usually light a match to light something else. You would use a match to start, if the match is like a, a relationship or that kind of fire, it's going to start them burning a fire that they tend the rest of their lives together or something like that, if that's sort of where we're going with this. But if it's just a match, that's very small. Yeah. And you have these two places at the beginning where he wishes that the rain was gasoline, which we could really just see as a threat. He wants to burn down everything because of his grief. I want to, yeah. you know, I want this lit match to strike into the gasoline rain and just obliterate the world. That's the image it evokes for me. Yeah. But at the end here, we have that small human fire that was originally kindled, that match of potential that because of the poem, we can't really think of anything other than it going out very quickly. No, that, yeah, that's right. Um, as a sort of side thought that this, another book that, that I recommend this whole collection because this is in uh, Night Sky with Exit Wounds and he deals with a lot of issues in that book, you know, queerness, uh, trauma, loss, he's Vietnamese and the sort of the history of um, the relationship between, you know, America and Vietnam, very fraught, obviously. Uh, and those are issues, but, but within all of those just deep, deep hurts, writing and language are sort of the ultimate tool that Ocean Vuong articulates he has to to deal and make something beautiful with. And so this is sort of um, one instance among many in the book where where sort of poetry itself is is the way to um, you know, living a life amid all of this sort of ruinous suffering kind of definitely. Um, I have a couple of parts of this that sort of stick out to me that I'm curious about. Yeah. And the first has to do with all of this teeth and mouth and tongue business. What do you do with that? The title of the poem is a literary device. It's a written piece that explicitly returns to that component of the title to sort of give it a deeper cohesion and meaning. Why so much focus on the mechanism through which we talk and speak? That's a good question. So just to sort of refresh, there's kind of your tongue lit match. If only he dies the second his name becomes a tooth in your mouth. His slow exhale. His slow exhale. Choking, which is removal of breath. Yes. And then the smothering. So, which is another really, that part is. That's the intense. other part. I have uh, all right, we'll get, we'll get there. But smothering him and he cries and then and then the end his teeth reflected in the window reflecting your lips as you mouth hello your tongue lip match well for me part of it part of it is so were you making a distinction between like writing and speaking i'm just sort no? of curious okay. because i'm i'm not necessarily making a distinction yeah. i just think it's very interesting that so much is attention is paid to not just the mouth but the yeah. various components of the mouth, the notion of breath, exhaling, choking, crying out, it's all stuff that you wouldn't, it doesn't throw you out of a poem to see them included, but in a poem that's so intensely interested in anaphora as coping mechanism. Yeah. Writing or repetition in writing or this literary term as the mechanism of coping. This is a poem that to me is obsessed with 
mouths. Yeah. <laughs> Which no, is I'm... maybe not something, it's perhaps to be expected in a poem that is about two romantic partners. But at the right. same time, it sticks out only because of the intent that the title signals me to be paying attention to in the poem. Yeah, it's definitely conspicuous. I mean, my, my only two thoughts, which we you've sort of touched on already is, you know, there's poetry occupies, obviously we're reading it on the page, but you know, this, we, we talk about the speaker and, and he elsewhere, you know, we talk about song. So it is, um, in this between space between the page and and the mouth kind of and so i think that he even though you know we experience it in the book he is is framing it and he does this elsewhere in his collection as a song and so the mouth and breath are sort of vitally important for an anaphora or some kind of repetition in that way and then the second which you've said is this is very romantic and this is about desire and and i think those are those are central parts of the body that he desires or something or that you know represents desire um it, it yeah. reminds me strongly partially because you said that the name of the of the book that this goes to but the song because the night that has the line desire uh, desirous hunger is the fire I breathe or something like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is like everything that this poem is playing with. In yeah. Little snippet. Yeah. No, that's great. I like that. Uh, no, but then with that teeth still are, is it, that's like an interesting part that I don't quite, it, it's a curious use, especially the two instances. If only he dies the second his name becomes a tooth in your mouth. That's kind of this wish for, you know the 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 lover to become part of him and then he can die because he'll already be in the mouth sort of thing but to think about it's to think about the one you love as like you know you're one of your molars or something is like a yeah i have, I have an idea about this you have an idea it could be uh-oh it could be that what we are being led to in this work is that now that this person has departed, they live on in how their story is retold mm -hmm. by those who remember them. That's what's going on in this poem through writing. So not only is the story told in an Afra, not only is an Afra used to reach the point at the end, but the very act of retelling the story is restating. And perhaps because spoken interaction is how it's most often going to happen, part of what we're being signaled towards is that we're retelling after departure the story of this person's life and this relationship specifically, but more generally, yeah. Someone who you lose becomes a molar, becomes a part of how you interact with the world and becomes something that you retell in who you are. Yeah, I like that. Um... I like that. I also don't really know what to do with the smothering line. Yeah. Be because that is the description of a murder. Pretty much, right? Like I'm not, I don't think I'm making that up. I no, think that's so like, you're, you're smothered till you, like the pillow gets darker, the bright pink pillow recedes into darkness as it is pressed down ever harder onto the face of the victim. 
Yeah. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. That That is um, that is what is in the poem. So you grab your pillow and smother him as he cries into the fabric you hold still until he's very quiet. So one reference to another poem in Night Sky with Exit Wounds that will slightly, I, I don't know if illuminate, but suggest something is called Into the Breach. It begins with a quote from Jeffrey Dahmer. The only motive that there ever was to keep them with me as long as possible, even if it meant just keeping a part of them. Then the poem is essentially, a, you know, about loving a man so much that he wants them like the pieces. So there's a uh, kind of like, I never wanted the flesh, how it never fails to fail so accurately. But what if I broke through the skin's thin page anyway and found the heart, not the size of a fist, but your mouth opening to the width of Jerusalem? Anyway, so there's a, you know, it's interesting because the heart, it's like, like an old, in this poem, you know, the heart is this old cliche in poetry. It has symbolic value. Um, and there's many ways I think that more modern and contemporary people have still tried to you employ the heart as a device while keeping it fresh. And this in some ways represents the latest, most intense attempt to do so by being like, no, I'm also talking about taking your heart from your body in the way that Jeffrey Dahmer did and keeping it because I love you that much or something like that. I think the link in intensity is clearly yeah. there. And that's my suspicion about what this line is for, but just every time I've read through it, and particularly when listening to you read it, I was struck by that line. Cause I think if of any part of this, that almost takes me out of the poem because I get hung up on trying to figure out why that's in there, which can be good. I think yeah. that it's it's like that probably for a reason, again, because of how crafted this poem is. But compared to many of the poems we've discussed, I think this is the first time that a line that I think is meant to drill you deeper into the poem has sort of had the opposite effect for me. I still get a lot out of this poem, really enjoy it, but that little set of lines doesn't quite sit naturally for me. Not that it doesn't sit and not that I don't, particularly knowing that in the collection that contains this poem, there are other poems that make similar connections and references. I think probably if I read it as part of the collection, that wouldn't happen, but it definitely sort of threw me sideways in thinking about this poem because it reads a little differently than how the rest of the poem is there. Uh, there is not the same amount of anaphora or reference to other components in the poem going on in that line. It's sort of like the Hendrix record line. It really sticks out. And because it is so desperately evocative, I get stuck thinking, is the poem actually pointing me here? Because it sticks out, is this where it wants me to sit? And I don't think that's true. I think that the poem wants that to undergird and give us an understanding that's deeper of the rest of what's going on. That's very interesting. And, and I think it is strange to me 
too. And, and I think there is, you know, the possibility that it is, there's always this question of when you're looking at poems, it's like, well, maybe this is kind of a mistake or like not a mis- not like a typo, but like a sort of thematic error. Um, but at the same time, one, one thing that I did notice was there's the repetition of he dies, he dies, he dies. And then when that happens, the last he dies is the morning he kisses you. And then after, after that happens, that's when he gets the pillow and smothers him in the poem. And there is no more repetition of he dies. So that also kills the repetition. That's and very it, true. Yeah. And it, it feels like, I just, I wonder, and, I, and maybe this isn't the best way that Ocean Vuong could have expressed this, but I wonder if you're living with the sort of haunting memory of someone that you've loved who is no longer there, you need to kill them in your memory to be able to go on in the world in some way. Or kill the negative memories to some extent. Or kill, kill, the negative. kill, kill that negative part of right. their departure, because there is so much power in positivity yeah. in remembering someone that you want to sort of power through that. I think it's very interesting. So you were kind enough to point out there was an earlier version of this poem. Oh yeah. And that part is very different in the earlier version. And I want to just read that quickly. Um, so this book came out in 2016, but this poem was published in the University of Southern Indiana Review, I think, and not exactly sure what issue, but it, it must have been around maybe 2012 or 2013. I had found that, and it, it's different from the, the, the poem that got published in the book. So the section in the originally published poem reads, He dies the morning he kisses you for two minutes too long, and he says, I love you, followed by, I have something to say. And you quickly grab your favorite pink pillow and smother him as he cries into the soft and darkening fabric. And you hold very still as you look out the window at the streak of ochre light smeared on the young birch, and you breathe. You breathe thinking of summer, the long evenings pressed into smoke-soaked skin. You hold still until he's very quiet, until the room fades black and you're both standing in the crowded train again. So it, in, it brings in more anaphora in how it's writing. There's more callbacks, but it also signals us, along with what you're reading is, to those happier memories. And that is where this poem goes, but this injects a second happy memory that the person doing the, the smothering is thinking of during the smothering process, which more strongly, I think, links it to this reading of strangling out the part of grief that is more negative and transitioning into those positive summer memories. Yeah, no, I think that's, it. that's, that's exactly right. And it, it definitely is more compressed in the current version, which I think is largely to its credit, but I, I think I prefer the finished version to the, the older version. Yeah. Because I um, think it's accomplishing the same goal with a greater economy of language and as a result with greater impact. Yeah. But when you make that 
when you take that risk to use murderous figurative language, you know, your attentive reader is going to be like, what the fuck? And so if, if, if it is compressed to the point where it's ambiguous, too ambiguous, perhaps, that can really take someone out of the experience. And I don't know that it would have been any less ambiguous in its previous iteration. I think yeah. the ambiguity remains the same while the impact of the much greater in the finished version. I just, I think it absolutely supports your notion of how we should, how we should read that section. I think you're spot on. And I yeah. think that having these two versions is really valuable in, in seeing some authorial intent there. Cool. Should we read it again? I think we should read it again. Anaphora as coping mechanism. Can't sleep, so you put on his gray boots, nothing else, and step out in the rain. Even though he's gone, you think, I still want to be clean. If only the rain were gasoline, your tongue a lit match, then you can change without disappearing. If only he dies the second his name becomes a tooth in your mouth. But he doesn't. He dies when they wheel him away and the priest ushers you out of the room, your palms two puddles of rain. He dies as your heart beats faster, as another war coppers the sky. He dies each night you close your eyes and hear his slow exhale, your fist choking the dark, your fist through the bathroom mirror. He dies at the party where everyone laughs and all you want is to go into the kitchen and make seven omelets before burning down the house. All you want is to run into the woods and beg the wolf to fuck you up. He dies when you wake and it's November forever. A Hendrix record melted on rusted needle. He dies the morning he kisses you for two minutes too long when he says, wait, followed by, I have something to say. And you quickly grab your favorite pink pillow and smother him as he cries into the soft and darkening fabric. You hold still until he's very quiet, until the walls dissolve and you're both standing in the crowded train again. Look how it rocks you back and forth like a slow dance seen from a distance of years. You're still a freshman, you're still terrified of having only two hands. And he doesn't know your name yet, but he smiles anyway. His teeth reflected in the window, reflecting your lips as you mouth hello, your tongue a lit match. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please write a review on iTunes. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related stuff at facebook.com slash close talking or Twitter at close talking at Jack Rossiter Munn at Hot Sauce Box. If you have another reading of one of the poems we discussed or think we got something bonkers wrong, please shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.